I'm Jody F. Welcome to Homicidal Impulse. Tonight we're going to discuss the still unsolved murders of two little girls in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the year of our Lord, 1963. One slight caveat about tonight's installment. Many of the names are challenging and I'm unsure about the correct pronunciation. I'm going to pronounce these names phonetically and if this is incorrect, I apologize profusely. The date is September 7th, 1963. The time is approximately 6 p.m. Barbara Ann Foshog, age four, and Melissa Ann Lee, age five, lived in adjoining houses in Minneapolis, specifically at 338 and 334 East 17th Street. The neighborhood is described as a, quote, low rent area in the newspapers of the time. The girls are last spotted playing in a sand pile on a vacant lot behind their homes. Aside from one other possibly problematic sighting, this is the final time the girls are seen alive. When Melissa and Barbara fail to return home, their parents report them missing at 9 p.m., which seems insanely late for a four-year-old to be running around outside, but parenting standards were laxer in days of yore. During the law enforcement search for the girls, one of their friends, five-year-old Virginia England, came forward with a purported final sighting. According to Virginia, she witnessed a man attempting to lure Melissa with a cinnamon candy stick. When Melissa refused the candy, he slapped her and dragged her into his car. According to Virginia, Barbara followed willingly. The man's description was as follows, 25 years old, medium build, dark hair, wearing steel-rimmed glasses. Coincidentally or not, taxi driver Marvin Wayman saw a man fitting that description talking to his daughter earlier that week. When questioned about the interaction, the stranger said, I just happen to like kids, which today would have us reaching for our cell phones to call 911. But this was apparently a reasonable sentiment in the mid-1960s. I should note that I call Virginia England's statement problematic because there is one online source which claims she made up the story. I can find no articles in the newspaper archives, however, disputing Virginia's version of events. It's certainly possible Virginia's story was discredited, however, because that would explain what happened next. Melissa's stepfather, Melvin Leverett, seemed to become an immediate person of interest to investigators. Obviously, when children go missing, their parents are always natural suspects, and Melvin Leverett was not exactly in the running for father of the year. He reportedly physically abused Melissa, and he was known to be a violent man. On September 30th, 1964, one year after the girl's disappearances, he will be arrested for raping a neighbor. The disposition of this case was not publicized. Additionally, according to detectives at the scene, Melvin Leverett's affect was strange. He seemed mechanical and emotionless. He was given a polygraph related to the girl's disappearances, but the results were not publicized by law enforcement.
The search for Barbara Foshog and Melissa Lee was extensive. Volunteers from the local Citizens Band radio group joined Minneapolis police officers in a thorough sweep of the area, and bloodhounds were called out the very next day. No sign of the girls could be found. The mystery of the girls' disappearances persisted for 24 days. On October 1st, their badly decomposed bodies were found in Plymouth, approximately 10 miles from the site they'd last been seen. The girls were found by a Parks Department employee named Jesse Thighs. Their remains were located across from Mission Farms, a sanitarium for alcoholics. The area was known as a lover's lane. The girls were reportedly found side by side, face down, entangled in brush. One of their legs was missing, possibly dragged away by animals. Melissa Lee was found nude. Barbara was wearing only red shorts. The rest of the girl's clothing was found nearby. Barbara's white headband was still in her hair. Although I can find no mention of this in the media, an online rumor alleges the girls were encircled with a ring of powdery substance, which was later found to include hydrochloric acid a substance to which Melissa's stepfather, Melvin Leverett, reportedly had access. There was one other item of note found with the girls' bodies, a detail which has always remained etched in my mind. Two big clumps of hair, which didn't belong to either victim. Authorities have never revealed whether scalp fragments were also present on the strands. This hair was sent to the General Atomics Laboratory in Southern California, which examined the clumps against samples from the girls' hairbrushes. The lab confirmed there was no match. The girls' hair was lighter in color and finer in texture than the hair clumps. Police had several theories regarding the extraneous hair found at the scene. Detectives speculated the hair might have belonged to a wig the killer was wearing, or the hair may have simply been placed at the scene to confuse investigators. One detective theorized the hair may have been yanked out of the killer's head or fallen out of his pocket. His walking around hair, if you will. Plymouth Police Chief Calvin Hawkinson scrutinized the files for local hair fetishists. Speculation the hair clumps were an important clue intensified when two other little girls in the area were approached by a man wearing, quote, something funny on his head. Law enforcement told the public to keep an eye out for miscreants snipping off locks of hair in movie theaters, but the hair clump lead eventually fizzled. Unfortunately, investigators didn't have many other clues to rely upon. Due to decomposition, the medical examiner was unable to determine the girl's cause of death or the presence of evidence of sexual assault. Searchers drained the local reservoir two blocks from the girls' houses, but nothing of evidentiary value was located. Pat Walling, Minneapolis police chief, said the killer had to be familiar with the area to find such an obscure spot to place the girl's bodies. So alcoholics drying out at the nearby alcoholic sanitarium were questioned to no avail. 
Leads dried up and the investigation withered. Ten years would pass before the next major lead in the case. The date is November 30th, 1973, ten years after the Barbara Foshog and Melissa Lee murders. Now two more girls are missing, sisters Pamela Jean and Linda Sue Kuehl. Linda is 13 and Pamela is 18. They live in Plymouth, Minnesota, where Barbara and Melissa's remains were located. Two weeks later, on March 13th, the Kuehl sisters' bodies are found in a maple grove cornfield. Pamela has been murdered with a hatchet. Linda has been strangled. As was the case with Barbara and Melissa, decomposition precluded a determination of sexual assault. Unlike the murders of Barbara and Melissa, however, the murders of the Kuehl sisters featured an obvious suspect. They were last seen leaving their apartment building rec room with 27-year-old Wayne Leroy Wakazo. According to his subsequent confession, Wakazo told the girls he was taking them to a party, but instead took them to his apartment and murdered them. I should note that Wayne Wakazo, when arrested, was in a wheelchair with both of his legs in a cast. This is because of an incident the previous week, during which he attempted to strangle his girlfriend's mother for refusing to reveal his girlfriend's whereabouts. The joke was on him. His girlfriend was actually hiding in the home, and when Marquezo attempted to strangle her mother, the girlfriend jumped out of a closet with a shotgun and blasted him in the legs. Shotgun girlfriend is the heroine this story needs. Wayne Wakazo, as it turns out, had lived directly across the alley from the adjoining houses of Barbara Foshog and Melissa Lee. He would have been 18 years old at the time of their murders, and he had spent time in a cabin only one mile away from the site where Barbara and Melissa's bodies were found. It wasn't much to go on, but prosecutors were apparently confident they could make it work. Wakazo was charged with the Foshog and Lee murders, in addition to the murders of the Kuehl sisters. While he was waiting for trial, incidentally, Wakazo broke his leg again, allegedly when he fell out of bed in jail. I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Anyway, Wakazo always denied he'd killed Barbara and Melissa, and the charges were eventually dropped. He instead pleaded guilty to second and third degree murder, respectively, in the deaths of Pamela and Linda Kuehl. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison. I'm sure you will be gratified to learn he has since been released. I can find no information regarding his parole date, but he's been free for at least 10 years, as he filed for bankruptcy in 2009. He currently lives in Aurora, Minnesota. Pamela and Linda Kuehl, in case you are wondering, are still dead. So was Wayne Marquezo guilty of the murders of Barbara Foshog and Melissa Lee? Or was the real killer Melissa's stepfather, Melvin Leverett, an apparent no-goodnik and longtime person of interest in the investigation? 
Statistically speaking, parents are always the best suspects in the murder of their children. 57% of murdered children under the age of 12 are killed by a parent or guardian. Familial murder is a more statistically probable scenario than stranger abduction, even in the happiest of homes, and Melissa Lee's family life was apparently quite dire. However, we do know Wayne Wakazo, homicidal maniac, was living right across the alley from the girls. Being in close geographical proximity to a murderer would undoubtedly ratchet up the odds the girls were killed by a non-family member. That said, aside from his geographical proximity, there's no hard evidence tying Wayne Wakazo to the slayings. Irrespective of statistics, it's possible neither Melvin Leverett or Wayne Wakazo was responsible for the Foshag Lee murders. Neither man, for all their faults, appears to have any history of hair fetishism, and those two clumps of alien hair certainly didn't skitter to the crime scene on their own hairy little legs. Keeping that in mind, it's entirely possible a third unknown suspect is responsible for the crime. Although it may seem like the Foshag and Lee murders have receded into history, we're in luck. Thanks to modern technology, it's still possible the crime might one day be solved. Earlier this year in Colorado, another 1963 cold case, the murder of Girl Scout Peggy Beck, was solved via familial DNA. Solving the Foshag and Lee murders is a long shot, certainly, but anything is possible. If Wayne Wakazo did murder Barbara Foshag and Melissa Lee, I hope he read about the Peggy Beck case. I hope it keeps him up at night. I hope the specter of familial DNA haunts his dreams, just like shotgun girlfriend undoubtedly haunts his nightmares. Okay, it's time to personalize this crime. What did we learn from the murders of Barbara Foshag and Melissa Lee? I can see two major takeaways. The first, unfortunately, is a little depressing. You can't paraphilia-proof your existence. There is nothing so banal or so grotesque it doesn't turn somebody on. Sure, you can shave your head to avoid the hair fetishists, but you still have to worry about the pantyhose fetishists, or the blue jeans fetishists, or the blue eyes fetishists. Perversion is endemic. It never ends. If you exist, you're a target no matter what you do. Secondly, and this is also kind of a depressing thought, you can never be too cautious with your neighbors. That genial old guy who lives down the street, maybe he murdered a pair of teenage sisters in the 1970s. Or maybe he's a hair fetishist who got away with murdering two little girls in 1963. Maybe he's got a terminal illness and rape murder is the next item on his bucket list. You can never be sure. Proceed with caution. Remember, fashions come and go, but vigilance never goes out of style. This has been Homicidal Impulse with Jody F. Don't forget to lock your doors.